Excellent. Are you seeing me and my slides? Yeah, we can see your slides. Over to you, Sandri. Thank you very much. So thank you for having me. Sorry for the broken voice you have to be today. So I'm going to talk to you about the Hackney web map template. So here is the Hackney uh, Data and Insight team working in ICT of Fellenborough Hackney. Um, so we have different ranges of responsibilities, but this work I'm going to talk to you about today is from myself and Martha Dialobos, who are working with spatial data. So a bit of context about spatial data and data sharing in Hackney. So <clears throat> that's the list of all the departments using GIS at the moment in Hackney. There are lots of GIS users, uh, something like 500, uh, ranging from just simple data viewers to data owners. And this is the list of the services who actually actually generate spatial data planning, parking, a lot of a lot of users. So that's a lot of data to share. So how do we share this data in Hackney? Well, um, Hackney is not using any open data publication platform. We have a handful of Tableau developers, but developing a dashboard is quite long and needs sign-off. Uh, so it's not very easy. Before 2020, we had uh, this monolithic web mapping portal that we were using to share dozens of data layers. <clears throat> but it was not very useful to residents. I would actually struggle to give you the, the user need behind that. It was mostly for us to, to put data out. And it was not as well meeting the needs of services areas, which don't need to just publish data. They need to tell about what they're doing through data. So what we needed really was focused web maps to embed in web pages. But what we were finding on the market was not, well, is not too expensive or not really fitting uh, our needs. And there is so much open source around. So we started with a kind of um, isolated projects to polish our leaflet skills. First one was in 2017 after Grenfell Tower, when we had to uh, publish very quickly a lot of fire risk assessments at short notice. 2018, we had the council to respond to residents' concerns about air quality near a school. And a bit more joyful, in 2019, we published a summer map. That was, uh, we were very lucky to have a graphical designer, a front-end dev at this moment with us, and we took inspiration from a GLA map, and that worked very well, and we said, oh, we love this one, let's make it our template. So what exactly is the web map template? Well, it is uh, just a web application that generates leaflet maps on the fly based on the JSON configuration file. So on the left, you have 60 lines of uh, JSON, and that actually describes this parking zones map. The uh, template can generate maps that are standalone or embedded or full screen. So I'm going to go through uh, all the kind of styles, all the, the options you can have. Uh, so many different styles. You can add or not uh, interactive legend. You can add some personas, so that's a way of grouping uh, layers together uh, through themes, and so you can switch them on and off by groups. You can have a list view, so not only you show the map, but also all the items in the list below. You can have filters. You can have <clears throat> layer search, so you just search through the data by free text. 
We can have address search uh, browsing our uh, local property gazetteer. Uh, we can display metadata. So here you can see very simple metadata about the layers that are on the map. So that's actually a view on our um, corporate JS metadata table. You can have a download link for people who want to get the raw data behind the map. So that's just um, a quick overview. But how exactly, how does it work and how can you reuse it? So the web map template uh, is uh, consuming all its data, but as well all its configuration through GeoServer, which is a, a, a web server for geographical information. So the code is in a public repository and our configuration files are in a private repository. So that's just a collection, one file per map. And we use uh, an ETL process to turn these configuration files into some backend data usable by the application. But then all goes back through GeoServer to, uh, to fuel the application. So what do you need to reuse the template? Why do you need a GeoServer instance serving your special data via WFS? You need a place to store uh, one backend table and one metadata table. You need an ETL tool to, to change your, uh, your um, files into uh, the backend table. And you need uh, OS Maps API key. And then you just need to clone the repository. And maybe you need our email address because it won't work the first time. So future improvements uh, about the map template. So we have our list of issues um, listed in GitHub. And we are part of the uh, Maps in Services uh, working group from Digital Gov. That's a group who is working to establish good practices in web maps. And so uh, we are keen to implement those when they are ready. So last bit will be outcomes. So what did we get from this? So well, first we thought we were developing a map template, but actually we developed a proper data publication service. So we are now offering end-to-end -end support for services areas to publish their stories from the beginning. So improving their data, scheduling ingestion, telling them how to uh, document their data, a discussion about the, uh, the required functionalities and maybe if we need to develop them, and then liaising with the communication team about the best page, the best moment to publish the map. And I think our colleagues find it a very refreshingly quick process to publish about sensitive issues like log traffic neighborhoods, air pollution. You know, when people get a bit crazy on social media, it's so nice to be publishing something within, within you know, a day or two. And here on the right, you can see our Maya telling about our, um, our tree map <laughs> maybe two weeks ago. Uh, then we have another outcome that's our public facing map index. So it's a shiny little uh, map gallery that links to all the maps across the website because we have so many now and they're organized by themes. This app is reusing the web map template backend table, and it's very handy res resource to respond to freedom information requests. Another outcome is a much better data governance. Uh, yeah, people tend to use more metadata when they know their data is being published. So we actually have a three kind of three standards for metadata. It's not mandatory if you are just creating data for yourself. But when it's for the whole staff, you have to, pub to, you have to document it. And of course, if it's for the public, you have to do even better. And that's really helped people uh, understanding that. 
Then a few words about challenges and learning. So the first thing is says the available front-end development skills when you can. Hackney doesn't have any front-end uh, developer now. It's so expensive and our uh, the person who helped us so much for this project is now working in the financial times. So it's I think we just have yeah uh, some luck to have her and uh, it's important to just uh, grab the opportunity. Uh, full access to the JS backend opens so much possibilities. So we are going to the cloud cloud hosting for some of our projects, but we always make sure we keep access to the backend because if not, all this is not possible. Uh, managing the volume. So we have now a lot of map queries. How do we identify the most useful publication projects? And as well, uh, some, yeah, we have less, we would like to spend less time creating maps and more time for improving templates. So I'm wondering if we could maybe automate a bit more and have people more involved in creating their own maps. That's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Sandra. Uh, you're hopefully going to appear on our screen soon. And while that happens, just a reminder to everyone joining us online, uh, you can submit your questions to Sandrine via Slido if you're not already on there. It's bit.ly slash Slido DB41, capital S, capital DB. But I will come to the room for the first set of questions. Do wait for the microphone to come to you. Do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can. Uh, but remember, we are on the record. Uh, and do keep your questions short as you will be up against the clock. So who would like to ask the first question? Hand straight up there at the back. Uh, <coughs> Hi, Ollie Clifton-Moore from DFE. Um, <coughs> really impressive stuff that you've done. I was just wondering, to what extent do you collaborate with other London boroughs? Do they learn from you? It feels like you know, doing it at a hackney level is, is one thing, but making it more consistent across a wider geographical area might be uh, an area to uh, explore. So, yes, we, we're trying to share uh, what we do. Uh, a few learned boroughs have uh, expressed interest, but they haven't implemented it. So we just need to be more, yeah, to, to, to better explain how it works and to maybe make our report a bit better, but I really hope that can be reduced. Definitely. We are as well in touch with, uh, with LOTI, so I think we can maybe touch more people through this, um, yeah, through this, this network. Excellent. I think we had a presentation from LOTI, the London Office of Technology and Innovation, uh, way back uh, a good couple of years ago, so find that on our website. Um, I will go to an online question next. This is from Jeremy. Good evening to you, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for a great presentation. Was there any reason to use OS data rather than OpenStreetMap, for example? So we started with uh, OpenStreetMap, but um, OS data fits the council better because it goes to finer, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's topographical data and for a lot of data sets that we publish, it's important to know exactly where the things fall, like EV charger, you know, or um, yeah, air quality tube, that we really need this precision. Um, it's true that, yeah, the transition was difficult. Uh, people did love, really love OpenStreetMap, but for some maps, it's really much better to go for a survey. Great, thank you. Um, I'll come back into the room for the next question. Who wants to go next? I've got one there. Hi there, um, Yusuf from Palantir. Uh, this is really, really cool. Thank you for doing it and sharing it. Um, I was wanting to ask about the data set you're pulling from. 
I assume it's like a gazetteer kind of thing. What's the data quality like and have there been any issues that users have seen that you can correct the gazetteer or any use cases where you're improving data quality by using it in this different way? Uh, are you talking about our address data? So, yeah, we are pulling from our LLPG, our gazetteer, which actually custodian is within our team. So we have very, very close relationship. It's true that not finding an address is always a good way to, to get feedback. Although this happens mostly inside uh, the council. I think, yeah, a lot of, yeah, most of our web maps don't use this address functionality, so we don't really get feedback from the, from the outside. But yeah, internally that happens a lot. And I think we have, a, yeah, we were, I think, gold standard, if I'm correct, last year. So yeah, we seem okay. Excellent, thanks. Uh, a reminder, if you're watching us online, you can use Slido to submit your questions, bit.ly slash slidodb41. But I'll stick in the room for the next question. Hands up if you would like to ask one, uh, right down here at the front. Hi, my name's Clara. I'm from the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, I wondered, does your map have a functionality to be opened by the user in Google Maps? And if not, was there kind of any user request to do that? Um, so, no, it doesn't. But if people uh, want to access our individual data sets, they can. So they can ask and we get them the link and so they can reuse this data, it's really open data, they can use it anywhere they want, they can transform it and put it on top of the Google map if they want. But uh, yeah, all our data, like in many local authorities, is created on top of our non-service. The referential is a bit different. It won't align perfectly fine on the Google map. But yes, that's something that people can do if they want. Um, building on that, I was going to ask, actually, um, in general, how have you found that residents have been using the maps? Have you had much feedback from them? And how has that sort of fed into what you've done next? Yes, so we used um, uh, Hodja at the beginning of the, at least for our first map, and it was really uh, nice feedback. Um, the thing is, yeah, I think people always want more data. So they will firstly ask, oh, but can you have can you have this and this and this in addition that we don't have? So it's always a bit uh, frustrating. But for oh yeah, for the map itself, people like it, and I think the best feedback we had is when we added this download uh, link, when people say, okay, we can as well get the raw data. They really really love that. I think. Fantastic. We we always ask for more data here at today. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to stick in the room for the next question. Hands up if you'd like to ask it. Yes. So hello, Richard Saunders from MadsTech here. I've done, done a little bit of work in with uh, county councils in the past, but um, two questions. One is a bit of follow-up, if I can, um, on how you can use this form to get more insight into your local community, the things that are interested in, the kind of the problems that they're having, and has has that been thought about? You know, and if if so, kind of what are you doing there? And sort of part two of the question is this: sort of step one in a uh, digital strategy for Hackney, or is it part of a bigger roadmap? Um, 
So for the first part, uh, I think we are mostly reacting to um, users, so, so, so public demand. So yeah, our communication teams will tell us, oh, there is a lot of, uh, of movement on this issue or this issue that seems to be really mattering to people. So, and then we say, okay, let's publish something. So I think we are a bit uh, maybe reacting rather than proactive. I'm not sure how we could uh, use this to find out more. It's true we don't, we don't have yet the option to have people um, you know, submit information on the map, like you would in a common space, for example, but that would be very interesting probably to find out, okay, what are the places where people feel such or such things. So yeah, very interesting. And um, the second was about the roadmap. Um, the open data has been here for such a long time. I, I can't, uh, I mean, yeah, the, for, I've been in Hackney for eight years and it's true that since the beginning we're like, oh, we need to do something about open data. But it's, uh, yeah, there are so many different uh, things that make it slow that I think we just said, okay, anyway, Spatial data is different. It's easier to get out because most of it is not sensitive. So just let just let's do it, even though, uh, yeah, yeah, even though it's not doesn't have to be now. But yeah, just we can do it. So let's do it. Excellent. Thanks. We can squeeze in a very very quick final question. How do you obtain your environmental data? Uh, so. So most of what we publish is obtained by uh, my colleagues in different uh, departments. So for example, they will be placing traffic counters in the streets or uh, diffusion tubes to measure uh, concentrations of particles. Uh, but some of it we get from the London data store as well. So things like the air, air, yeah, air quality model. Um, but yeah, when it comes from the outside, we mostly don't republish it because people do it better elsewhere. So most of what we show is really coming from Hackney. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for getting us off to a brilliant start this evening. Thank you, Sandrine. Thank you. We now turn to our second speaker of the evening for her second Data Bytes appearance. It's Kathleen. I'm going to be a little bit analog too, so uh, do bear with. Uh, yeah, works. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Kathleen Caper. I'm Head of Data Maturity and Governance at the Central Digital and Data Office. And the clock is off, no pressure. Um, one of the things I really like about Data Bytes is the opportunity to sort of zoom in and zoom out. Um, and I feel you've had a sort of a zoom in example, and I'm going to zoom right back out again with you. Uh, cool. Who are we? Um, if you don't know us, we are the Central Digital and Data Office. Um, it's a bit cheesy, um, but I really kind of like our sort of corporate line about us being, um, our job being putting in place the right conditions for the rest of government to deliver their data goals and ambitions, um, as well as the cross-government goals and ambitions that we can do together as well. Um, so our job effectively is we lead the DDAT function for government. Um, specifically, I'm in Data Strategy and Standards Directorate, the best directorate, um, and which is where the data maturity team sits. Data maturity assessment for government is out the door. We launched just over a month ago at the 
end of March. Um, it was developed by our good friends at the Data Quality Hub at ONS. Um, they did all the sort of hard yards around development and testing of the model, and then it came to CDDO for implementation and strategic deliverables. Um, it came about because data maturity was flagged in the national data strategy, and a data maturity model was a key deliverable of the, of the NDS. Um, and where we are right now is permanent secretaries, CDIOs, CDOs from across government have committed their governments, their governments, their departments, to completing a targeted assessment of a strategically important part of their organisation within the year. Uh, I think one way of thinking about this year is it's kind of a beta launch year for us before we really um, set some stuff in stone. So lots of opportunity to learn. Fans of data maturity assessment will be familiar with this kind of a structure. Um, our specific data maturity assessment is divided into 10 topics. Um, the topics enable you to get a really wide and also deep picture of your complete uh, data environment, and it enables you then to look at each of those topics um, and what maturity level you currently sit at in relation to those topics. It is at the moment, I think, a comprehensive assessment and will enable organisations to be, uh, get a picture of their organisation and their data environment that is really granular, um, depending on how they undertake that assessment. Um, it's been designed by government, for government. Um, DQ Hub worked with a lot of stakeholders across government um, and the 10 topics and the six themes which cross-cut it were chosen to enable that whole data, whole environment view, end-to-end, -end, whole life cycle, but in a government context. And I think it sort of gives us an opportunity to think about our data and the way it kind of differs a, a bit from the uh, private sector and models that, uh, data maturity models that come out of the private sector. It's not wedded to any specific data strategy, um, being that whilst there's sort of alignment with the goals and where we want to get to, it will um, live beyond those strategies and continue to deliver for us um, over a long period of time. It's not about it being a, this is a data maturity assessment for the next two to three years. It's our kind of 10 year plan and longer if I have a say in it. But we are very much just at the beginning. Where we want to get to um, is that we want to be able to understand at organisational level uh, what data maturity looks like, where the strengths and weaknesses are. We want organisations to know that about themselves. Um, we have really big plans for the insights and intelligence that DMA can deliver. Um, and that is within organisations and across organisations and for government as a whole. Um, it's not going to happen overnight, but we are working on a roadmap that gets us there. For government as a whole, um, and being able to ingest the findings of departmental data maturity assessments, I think gives us a real opportunity to evaluate current government data strategy and to set forward data strategy as well. Um, and over time, that intelligence will widen and deepen um, and I'm really excited about what we're going to find out. I have run slightly beyond my own time. I'm going to pivot. Pivot. I could spend the rest of this session going into lots of technical detail about um, the commitments and how you have to deliver a data maturity assessment. But really what I want to talk about is one of the big questions we get asked in the data maturity team is how do I talk to my stakeholders and get them to care about data maturity? How do I get that buy-in? Um, so this is what we talk about when we talk about data maturity. 
Step one, I appreciate it's not available to everyone, have a really good product that somebody else has developed and you are taking over is really helpful starting point. But it also means that DQ Hub had done a lot of the hard yards in the kind of initial visibility of data maturity in government. For our needs in CDDO, we wanted departments to be up to speed um, and on board ahead of launching. And we wanted senior boards to be really committed to this and to be behind the kind of commitments that we want to deliver this year um, and to sort of clear our delivery approach. So when we started to map out who our stakeholders were and what this all looked like, it took a very similar kind of um, view to what it would be for a, a project management model, um, a way of sort of who in an organisation needs to deliver a data maturity assessment mapped out across government as well. And then we started looking at what their interests were and nothing's ever quite this binary, but we basically got to this end of, in this quadrant, people are interested in why, and in this quadrant, they're interested in how and what. And that helped us to start shaping our data maturity messages. It's not really this demarcated. It's more of a sliding scale of emphasis, but I think you get, get my drift. Um, it's not about telling people what they want to hear. It's about hearing and communicating what's relevant to them um, and using the language that resonates with their role and responsibilities. So what does that actually look like? Data is fundamental to achieving our strategic, operational and corporate priorities. Um, it's very much data is a critical success factor for any business in the 21st century. If you don't understand the strengths and weaknesses in your data environment, you don't know where the risks are for delivering your priorities and your commitments. And I sort of draw your attention to thinking, think like a PermSec for a minute. If you're a PermSec or a Director General, you are in a position where quite frequently you have to change direction quickly, do new things. Will your data environment enable you, allow you to turn on your heel, to change things, um, to adapt at pace? So, Getting that kind of thinking and understanding how data maturity can support someone to deliver that um, in their role and what data maturity offers them as a benefit is good. Look at the time swinging by. Other benefits that are relevant to senior managers. For people at the delivery end, we wanted them to be excited about the opportunities and we shaped our messages around that. So some of what's expected of you, but really driven by what value you will get out of this and what the direct benefits to your team are. We want you to help us shape the next stage of this. So what you learn in delivering an assessment is going to shape what the final you know, set in stone data maturity assessment for government looks like. But we all end up, whether we're strategic or delivery, at the same place, which is we want fit and healthy data environments. We want the organisation to be great at delivering data and delivering its priorities. And we want to make better decisions with data. And that's the core message of data maturity assessment for government. <gasps> Did I go over? Or? I th that was pretty much perfect. Thank you, thank you for treating it with the really respect. Really worries. Thank you. Nice. I do. I understand, Kevin. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Kathleen. Um, just a reminder to those of you watching us online, please send your questions in via Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb41 if you're not already on the right page. Um, but I will start in the room again uh, for the first set of questions. Uh, who'd like to go first? I'll go here first and I'll come to you next. Hi, I'm Julianne. I work at the Information Commissioner's Office. Hi, nice to um, see you. 
Um, I think I was going to give you a slight hospital pass and ask if there was anything you didn't manage to mention because you ran out of time. Ooh, but, also, I yeah. but also, I was quite interested to know um, where in the process you are and whether you can share if any particular departments are doing amazing stuff that others could learn from. But maybe you can't disclose that. Um, I think I can talk into some generalities. It's probably the easiest thing. Um, I, I won't take your hospital pass, but okay. I see what you did there. Nice. Um, is we, as I say, we launched in um, March. So that's kind of the formal kickoff, really, of the year, the first year of data maturity assessment, where we'll solve some of the big operational questions. And then next year, we can start nailing some of the stuff down and looking at controls and incentives and what business as usual looks like. In terms of moving forward in this space, um, data maturity is something that organisations across government have been interested in for some time. Some have used um, commercial models, um, some haven't. Um, we have maybe slipped some people the pre-publication version of the, of the product because we knew that was kind of fixed in lots of ways because it had been through piloting and whatnot. Um, so I think there are a couple of departments, I won't name names, um, who have... Are, the point of completing their first assessments, um, and oh, they've learned a lot in doing that. Um, and a lot of that is comes through in the supporting resources that are published with the with the model. Um, so we very much try to incorporate as they've gone along their learning about okay, this is information we can share as sort of advice and guidance for people. Um, broadly, where we are though is this quarter for me is about having progress conversations with departments, making sure that they understand what they have been committed to by their senior managers um, and what the sort of flexibilities and potential scope of that is and getting them to think about and make a decision on what is for them uh, a targeted assessment, what is that strategically important part of the organisation that they're going to assess. Brilliant. That was a long answer, sorry. Thanks. Uh, Do, do you use artificial intelligence bots to rummage through the data and provide you any greater assistance in maturity and governance? Not yet. Well, it's, it's, not about, it's not about the quality of the data. It's about the fitness of the data environment. So that might mean from an AI perspective, um, thinking about in one of the topics around you know, tools and systems, um, are your tools and systems up to the task of what your organisation needs to deliver? And so AI, AI might be one of those things your organisation should be looking at if it's not already. But the assessment itself is in some ways kind of analogue. It's more about having discussions with people and mapping out your data environment and understanding how data is actually used in your organisation um, and whether you're using it in all the ways that you want to use it to deliver your goals. So it's not about um, a kind of mathematical approach where you go in and assesses a system, um, a system's health. It's about the soft stuff in lots of ways. And a lot of the learning from a maturity assessment comes through the process as much as the results that you get at the end. Great, thank you. Um, I'll come to you shortly, but I'm going to go online for the next question. Uh, this is from Sam from Med Confidential. Evening to you, Sam. Um, Sam asks, on leadership, part five of the Digital Economy Act was supposed to improve data in government. Can CDDO get government to follow better practices on data and transparency when CDDO is not willing to commit to them itself? Thanks, Sam. Um, 
not sure I can speak to um, CDDO's commitments because it's really just not my area. Um, and I suppose I would almost come back to you with the question of what do we mean by better data in government? And it's not a single answer, I think. And data maturity assessment is one of the tools that enables us to explore that space, but also give it context within specific organisations. Um, so different organisations will have different pressures on their data environment. Um, and so it's not a one-size-fits-all solution about what good data is in government. Um, it's about them being able to deliver their priorities and the role data plays in that. Um, it's a journey, it's never going to be a moment, um, be, partly because the environment will always move a little bit as well. Um, so it's always going to be a bit of a dance that we do. Um, and I know that you know, it would be great if we could say by this absolute date we will have achieved A, B and C and some things lend themselves to that and others don't. Great, thank you. Um, I'm gonna go here next. Hi, great presentation, uh, James from the Evidence Quarter. I'm just wondering if there's kind of a higher level to this where you look at data standardisation, so moving towards all government departments to go, great, this is how you look, this, you're at the right stage of maturity, but then the intergovernmental, departmental sharing for all those other ideas and questions that can be asked, is there a kind of a higher purpose that you're aiming towards as well? It's a great question, mostly because I want to answer it. Um, it's already in there is probably the way to describe it. So for um, it's embedded in each of the topics. You will see some stuff there like, you know, uh, are you using the standards that are relevant to your area of work? Um, there's a whole topic called engaging with others, which is about not only within your organisation, but beyond your organisation um, and how you are sharing data, how you are accessing data, um, whether you, you know, uh, doing that, whether that's business as usual for you or whether it's something that you're really struggling with. Um, but, you know, when you're mapping that against your organisational goals, actually this is a weakness that is really affecting our ability to deliver. So we need to invest in making sure we're able to do that better and more easily. Um, but it is absolutely embedded throughout the assessment that um, for each... Uh, so if you take a row of the assessment... Um, you've got five levels of data maturity. Under each one of those is a little description of what current status looks like for you. And as you move along that progression, you've got the features and characteristics of improved maturity. And there are specific lines, specific topics that are talking about, are you using cross-government standards? Um, are you using general standards um, around your data? Are you adhering to things like the tech code of practice? So it then for us, I think, is also about helping organisations to make those links in a kind of knowledge hub sort of way between strong maturities using these tools or, you know, the journey to stronger maturities using these. Great. Let's see if we can fit in two more questions. I'll come to you uh, next. But I'm going to go online first. This is from Tom King. Evening, Tom. How well does the balance of responsibility for development and implementation work? And is the ONS Data Quality Hub team still involved? God, yes. Wouldn't do without them. Um, so I think it's more about our organisational remits um, than anything. So um, CDDO, as the uh, leaders of the DDAT function for government, um, in Cabinet Office, we have the, the levers available to us to roll this out um, across government, which ONS doesn't necessarily have. ONS are an absolutely vital stakeholder in this year in helping us to understand... Um, what we're learning as it's rolled out and put into more and more live situations. Um, so whilst our kind of remit is very much about that sort of 
implementation and getting value out of it, um, the intelligence and insight um, and particular perspective that ONS and DQ Hub bring to it is absolutely vital to us. Fantastic, and very quickly. Uh, Jeremy Clark from DEFRA. You mentioned product in your um, presentation, um, about having a good product. Do you think that um, maturity scores should be used, or maturity assessment should be used to actually guide future IT investment, for example, in terms of developing business cases, if you have poor data maturity, therefore no funding? So should it be a, a direction, a tool for future investment on the IT estate? Yes and no. I don't think it should be used as a, uh, a reason to withhold funding from somebody. Um, so what I am looking for, because you know, if two organisations can come out with exactly the same scores but have different reasons and different timelines and different resource needs to improving their data quality, their data maturity. Um, and so you can't sort of standardise too much. But where I think there is value to be had is in enabling organisations to make better decisions using the results of their assessment in conjunction with a whole range of other bits of data from their organisation. So, you know, for us in the, you know, you've got your results of your assessment, um, you then look at that, can you map it out against your data strategy, against your organisational strategy, um, where you want to be in five years' time? Do any of your areas of weakness present a strategic risk? Um, can some of those be put in the backlog? Which ones are really a problem? And that enables you then, I think, to start thinking about what we, do we need to do and what investment do we need here? So I think it's in, within an organisation, it helps that decision making, but I hope over time we can get it to be robust enough for organisations to be able to cite it very much in business cases to say, our data maturity assessment showed this, thus we are doing this about it. And hello, Treasury, give us some money, please. And on that note, <laughs> thank you very much indeed, Kathleen. Uh, and before we go to our third speaker, apologies to Ashwarya and to Ruth Dixon for great questions we didn't manage to get to. Uh, Ashwarya's was around uh, the challenges involved in implementing interdepartmental collaborations and data sharing. IFG published a report about data sharing in government during the pandemic just a few weeks ago. Shameless plug, check it out. Um, and Ruth, who's done brilliant work on this already, asks, do you consider data continuity in your criteria, i.e. Um, are there changes or the same definitions from year to year? Um, we could have gone much longer on all of that, but now it's time for our third speaker, and that's Clara. Right way? Yes, right way. Um, hi everyone, my name's Clara, I'm from the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, the Information Commissioner's Office, for anyone who is not familiar with us, um, we're often referred to as the ICO, and we're the UK's independent uh, regulator for data protection and information rights. So you might be more aware of the sort of enforcement side of our organisation, but we also do lots around that as well. So uh, I'm from a policy development team. We also do work to support the public and support uh, organisations, and we also uh, interact with government. So... Uh, uh, my role is within the technology team. We um, cover a whole range of policy and technology issues, one of which is privacy enhancing technologies, or PET, which is what I'm here to talk about today. So uh, I was going to start with explaining what privacy enhancing technologies are. This is a really vague term that covers multiple techniques. 
But in reality, what pets are is they're a tool. And when you're trying to explain what a tool is and what it's what it does, it's a lot easier to explain what it's for. So rather than explain a screwdriver in abstract, you'd explain, you know, kind of how do you, how do you assemble a piece of IKEA furniture and here's what this is for. So that's how I'll approach this. Um, there's a number of situations in which sharing data is really complex. So either for data protection reasons, but there's also lots of other reasons. There might be confidentiality restrictions, commercial restrictions, contractual restrictions, or reputational risks around sharing your data from within your organization to another one. Um, so we can see um, in situations where one or more, um, two or more parties want to share data, um, they might want to see what the overlap in their data sets is. So a hospital trust might want to interact with a council social services provision to see how much overlap there is in the patients that they treat. There's also a situation in which a public body wants to make their data available to others. So the ONS make their census data public. Um, there's also lots of organisations that make their data available to researchers or to particular stakeholders. And the risk here is once you put the information out, maybe the data, the person who the data is about will be identifiable or in some way at risk. There's also situations where one body takes in data from lots of different other bodies to gain insights. Um, and the insights, the more you build up a picture of an individual, the more um, at risk they may be of invasion of privacy or identifiability. So that's the risk to consider in that case. Um, and lastly, there's the risk, the security risk. So if you are a government body who um, share your data with a data with a provider, like a cloud provider, you want to keep that data secure or transfers between public bodies also need to be secure. So that's the kind of framework that we're in. These are the jobs we will need to do. And pets can help enable some of these situations to so overcome the challenge that these situations present. So we don't have time in the three minutes to go through all of these techniques in detail. But I'm happy to chat about them in the questions. But I'll give you a flavour of what some of these tools do. So there's a whole class of tools that uh, enable insights to be gathered when data is combined without allowing the parties to access the data itself. So homomorphic encryption is one such example where um, data is encrypted, you do the analysis on the encrypted data, all the parties get the output, but they never get access to each other's data. Um, and secure multi-party computation is a similar um, effect. Uh, well, zero-knowledge proofs are more about proving something about the data without giving access to the data. So a digital ID is the typical sort of example of this. You can show that somebody is eligible for that service. So they're maybe 18, so they can um, well, drive a car, but you uh, don't have to tell them the date of birth. Then we have categories of pets or privacy-enhancing technologies that um, remove identifiability from the data. So they either make the data anonymous or they make it less likely that somebody can be identified. So differential privacy and synthetic data are both ways of achieving this. Um, and federated learning is uh, when you uh, want to train a model, you typically have to aggregate all the data in one place and then do the model training centrally. Federated learning is the way where you can train the model on the node, so in separate organizations, and then bring together the improvements to that model. So that's used a lot by um, health organizations. You can train um, on uh, medical imaging at a local level without having all the hospitals aggregate their data. 
And on the security part, we have uh, trusted execution environments. These are a combination of software and hardware techniques to make sure that data is isolated in an environment. So um, if a cloud provider processes sensitive government data and additional data of other uh, customers, you can use trusted execution environments to ensure that the data is safe. So privacy-enhancing technologies are a compliance tool, so they can help organizations meet their data protection requirements, they make it more secure, they minimize the amount of data that is shared, um, and they minimize the amount of purposes that the data can be used for. But they are far, far more than that as well. So um, really a privacy-enhancing technology um, enables data sharing to take place in situations in which it would not usually be able to happen for the kind of reasons that I mentioned at the beginning. So we're keen at, at the ICO to uh, encourage their use and really interested to hear other organizations who are using them so that we can champion best practice. Um, so I've told you how great pets are. I think I have to acknowledge that there are still some issues. Um, and you know, yes, they're a screwdriver, but not quite sort of sonic screwdriver yet. So there's a few things to be done on this. Um, there's the regulatory clarity issue. So what does it mean for data protection uh, and your other regulatory obligations if you use pets? That's kind of what we see our role to be and we're working in this area, also partly why I'm here today. Um, there's also organizational barriers because lots of organizations are not yet using these. You don't look around and see your peers using them as well. So that's something where we hope that there'll be a knock-on effect as we can champion good practice and share use cases from organizations that are doing this, other organizations will, will follow suit. Um, there's some maturity issues. So all the technologies that I explained on the previous slide are already uh, commercially available. They're not proof of concept. They, they are used in real environments, um, but they're not yet standardized across the board. So if you use homomorphic encryption and somebody else uses it, you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily using it to the same standard. So um, things like well, ISO standards for security ensure that when you talk about um, cybersecurity, you're talking about it in a consistent way. There are standards for pets being developed along those lines, and we're working with um, standard setting bodies to, to drive this. Um, there's also costs um, associated with pets. They're, they're, they're new and they're complex. And... Um, as with any new technology, we're expecting that the cost will go down. And again, there's another reason we're really keen to share good practice so that um, the, the kind of, uh, you, you get more adoption and the costs go down. Um, computational time is also expected to decrease as time goes on. So my main uh, plea for you is if you're interested in pets, uh, please reach out. If you're using pets already and have some uh, using pets in government and have some good examples to share with us, please get in touch. We're really interested. We are developing a set of use cases that we will publish. These are in collaboration with organisations who are already using pets. And we also are publishing um, guidance on privacy-enhancing technologies. We have the draft version out already, and the final version will be out in June, so very soon. And that is everything from me. Doing very well keeping to time tonight. No pressure, Dan. <laughs> um.
Um, just before uh, we go into questions, a reminder, if you're watching us online, it's use the Slido. It's bit.ly slash Slido DB41. Um, and just to say, uh, Clara will not be able to comment on the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill, which is currently winding its way through Parliament. So bear that in mind as you think about your questions. Uh, let's start in the room. Who would like to go first? Down here at the front. Thanks for that. Um, James, I'm a data protection officer for the Evidence Quarter. And I'm really interested in the concept of trusted data intermediaries that actually utilize pets uh, and layering pets with each other to then be able to get to the out outcome. So preserving utility of the data and the privacy of the data as well. So where, where do you think this needs to go? Because I, I think you're right, kind of federated learning, FHE, all, all, all the different pets. They're, um, they're not at a standard that people understand. They're not being used. They're thought of being too difficult. And then you've still got the data protection barrier where the technologists don't understand the regulation enough to put a framework in place. But the data protection people don't understand pets enough to trust them to actually preserve the privacy carefully enough. And the anonymization impact assessment framework from the ICO is possibly not robust enough to cover it. I'm just wondering if you had any comments on that stuff. Yeah, so um, our guidance is intended to address that um, sort of translation issue that you've just described. So you have technologists who don't necessarily understand the protection framework, DPOs who don't understand the pets, and the guidance speaks to both. So the guidance has a section explaining pets for non-technical people and a section that explains what the data protection impacts are of using pets. So we're hoping that that guidance will help facilitate conversations. Um, the anonymization issue you've raised is one that we're aware of. It's very case by case. So not, um, not all applications of synthetic data, for example, will result in anonymous data, which is why we can't make sweeping statements. But we're really interested in working with organizations who are uh, interacting with this more closely so that we can help support and find the answer in each case. And then, as I mentioned, kind of sharing those use cases and saying, well, in this case, this is the answer. So if you want to do a similar thing, you know what the answer is. Great, thank you. Um, this one follows on really nicely. This is from Sam from MedConfidential online. Pets are vital, but only do certain things. The small print of contracts remove the headline promises of privacy enhancement. What could the IFG community do to lower the perception that pets as used are mostly snake oil? Okay, interesting. Um, so, I not I don't think they're quite snake oil territory. Um, I think, well, my, I don't want to sound too much like a broken record, but in my opinion, the the way to get around this is to show how people are using them and what benefit they brought. So, dear IFG community, if you're using them in a way that you think isn't snake oil and actually bringing some pretty good benefits to your organisation, please shout about it either in your own platforms or come to talk to us about it. Um, I think that's really the way to unpack and show, well, how are you using this tool? What's the benefit from a compliance perspective and from a wider perspective as well? Brilliant. And do share Clara's presentation and that call to action uh, as widely as possible as well. Um, we'll go to Kathleen next. Hi, I'm still Kathleen from CTDO. Um, that was brilliant, thank you. It was a really good overview of the technical features that um, was really understandable, so thanks. Um, my question is broadly about public trust. So I think there's a massive opportunity in public trust that you know we'll at some point be able to say, well, we've used these technologies. 
but do you have a sense of where public trust is now around these kinds of technologies or whether people are reticent or buying in or any of that? Um, that's a good answer, a question not because I want to answer it, because I also want to know the answer. So maybe I can come back in sort of six to 12 months' time because we're considering um, doing further research around that question. So the sort of premise from an organisational perspective is that there's so many benefits, it's more secure, you minimise the data. What we're interested to find out is how does a person perceive it? Because if the outcome is the same, you know, you can still make an inference about a person, it's great that it's secure. Um, and there's lots of benefits from a compliance and business perspective, but, but does it really make a difference to you as an individual? So um, we're still in the early phases of that, but considering some research around that. And once I have the answer, I'll, I'll come back and update you. Fantastic. Well, yes, you'd be very welcome. Um, <laughs> I'll go online for the next question. Uh, it's Jeremy again. Uh, hello again, Jeremy. Thinking very long term, are you worried about quantum computing? Some of you may have seen as an excellent uh, visual explainer in the Financial Times uh, today. So we are looking at quantum computing. Um, in the context of PETS specifically, uh, homomorphic encryption is actually an encryption protocol that is uh, resilient to quantum decryption. So that's, um, that, well, that's not necessarily the kind of headline benefit of uh, homomorphic encryption, but you don't have to really worry about quantum in that context. Wider, uh, what are we doing within the ICO and the technology department? We are looking at what the timelines are for quantum risk uh, decryption risk from quantum, and so it is one of the things we're looking at. Thanks. Uh, let's come back in the room for the next question. Hi, Matt I'm a freelance data scientist. Um, you, the way you've been sort of framing some of the conversation about the sort of like the outcomes of the pets is very much in the sense of like complete anonymity of like individual subjects, and I wondered if there's anything about the sort of there are lots of quasi anonymization methods and sort of does your guidance actually talk about potentials where those are sufficient and usable and uh, uh, or is it is the is the sort of focus much more on that sort of complete anonymization piece um. uh, no the focus is on um, on both so basically not you're you're very right to say that not all privacy enhancing technologies uh, achieve anonymization, but also they're not designed to all achieve anonymization. So I mentioned briefly that synthetic data can be used to anonymize data, but it can also be used as a sort of pseudonymization technique. So it reduces the identifiability without completely anonymizing it. And both techniques are really valid and are useful in different cases. So our guidance explains this in a bit more detail um, and points out to our anonymization guidance that is a companion piece that is still in draft format and is due to be published next year. But um, there's a sort of uh, anonymization um, flow chart that you can work through to figure out, does your pet need to achieve anonymization? And if it does, is it achieving anonymization? But there's lots of valid use cases for privacy enhancing technologies that don't anonymize data and just enable the sharing of identifiable data. Thanks. Uh, we've got time for one more, and I think we've got a hand there. You, uh, Michal Paramba, DBT. Uh, when you talk about PET, do you consider uh, individual data ownership? Uh, because many of us problems, as you described them, uh, result from corporate data ownership. Do you see um, PET as technology to be a choice between this or personal online data storage, for example? Or can they work together to greater effect? 
When you say data ownership, do you mean the individual perspective of data ownership, or do you mean kind of the organisational's responsibility I'm towards talking, data? I, I'm talking about um, solid pods, uh, idea promoted by Open Data Institute uh, for quite some time now, where each individual can hold their own data, mm -hmm. and they can choose to share it with somebody else. And in that case, they can control perhaps what information they share, and perhaps anonymization is not as important anymore. Um, I think it's a really uh, interesting idea. I don't think the current pet focus that we have um, is really geared towards that. At the moment, we're looking at sort of um, <coughs> the conventional uh, frameworks for sharing data between organizations, so between <coughs> controllers or between controllers and processors, um, and how pets can enable those transfers. Um, so that, that's our focus at the moment. And perfect timing yet again. Uh, Clara, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>
and they've never left their, left their parents' uh, kind of uh, basements, etc. And those that are ideologically driven because they don't particularly like the philosophical underpinnings of organ or blood transplantation transfusion. This is a quote from uh, Tobias Elwood talking about the implications of us as an organisation potentially being compromised in some way, shape or form. But why would they specifically, why would they do that? Well, our data is massively valuable. We have a system called the Organ Donor Register. It has about 20, uh, 28 million records on it. The value of that data to, on the black or the dark web is about 1.2 billion pounds. Put it this way, a credit card record on the dark web, about 75p. Clinical record, anywhere between 25 and 50 quid on the dark web. Not only that, we create IP, we undertake clinical research, we help with clinical research trials, etc. All very valuable stuff for which other organisations, other entities, etc. would find of interest. And ultimately, the strategic role we play across uh, the NHS. Without us, think about it, without us, without blood flowing across the NHS, the NHS stops pretty quickly. Elective surgeries, A&Es, uh, labour wards, etc., all compromised without blood. So if we think about a catastrophic uh, impact or attack on the availability of our services, we can't provide the you know, blood, organs, etc., to the NHS. There's an impact on uh, an integrity attack. You can't trust the data you're making decisions from. That can lead to catastrophic consequences for patients. And ultimately, from a confidentiality perspective, if we have a breach of personal data, that ultimately reduces the faith of the, of the public in us as trusted custodians of their data, which means they are, are more and more unlikely to come in and donate. These are the things, these are the areas that we need to continuously defend and protect against. And how do we do that? We do that through significant amounts of data. Cyber is a team sport, right? We can't do it all on our own. We have the National Cyber Operations Centre through NHS uh, England, was formerly NHS Digital. They analyse 24 billion events a week, emanating across uh, national networks, local breakouts, etc. that identifies about 21 million malicious activities a month, overwhelming majority of which are uh, dealt with in an automated manner. And our reach and scale is across 1.9 million devices and counting across uh, the NHS. So that's the, national, that's the national side of things. We are a beneficiary, a customer of that. We also have, as NHSBT, our own capabilities. So we use that data, we also have our own. We as an organisation monitor about 1.2 billion events every uh, month. And that's across all variety of different sources, um, internet traffic, et cetera, user behaviour and all those kind of good things. And because cyber is <clears throat> an ever-evolving sport and one which has a continuously diminishing amount of addressable and accessible skill sets, we need to make sure that folks that we have in our SOC are, doing, are working on the high-value, complex activities. So we automate everything uh, or as much as we can everywhere all the time. Since November, we've, probably about, we've automated around 60 weeks' worth of activities so that our small but perfectly formed team can continue to work on the really difficult stuff that needs human intervention. <clears throat> and our external risks, sure. We need to, as I say, continuously interact with the public, continuously uh, drive our campaigns around uh, uh, blood donations, plasma, organ donation, etc. 
But we also, so whilst we have that digital presence, we need to continuously ensure that we have reduced our risk surface area. We do this through a whole uh, variety of means. This is everything from making sure that we have secure comms to allow data to flow from us to research institutions, from us to other hospitals and trusts, and from trusts back to us, et cetera, et cetera, so the ecosystem can continue to work in a secure, predictable manner. And ultimately, the most important layer is our people, is the staff across, uh, not just the NHS, but specifically within HSBT. If this goes wrong, then everything else is for now. So we need to make sure that we continuously um, have a aware and capable, proportionally capable staff based on their role. And we use data to help drive that understanding about the weak points or the challenge points, the compromise points across um, our workforce. Are they susceptible to certain types of phishing attack? Are they susceptible to certain types of fraud? Are they, certain, are they susceptible to certain types of activities, etc.? Using data to do that. And using data and automation and all our insights to help drive rapid response for when the worst happens, which it does. And we're able to respond to it in double quick time. So using data at a massive epic scale, which makes kind of needles and haystacks look almost irrelevant and redundant, we're able to continuously ensure that we have systems and services that are available, the integrity is known and understood, and the confidentiality of the data that we are trusted to use from the public and from the uh, healthcare system <clears throat> is continuously secured. Oh, did it? Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That was Thank luck you very much. <laughs> that was luck rather than design. I think. You, you luck uh, can all come back again. <laughs> um, again, if you're watching us online and you'd like to put a question to Dan, please use the Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb41 if you're not already on the page. Um, but let's start again in the room. Who would like to ask the first question of Dan? That was really helpful. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Rob Shaw from MassTech. Given where you were in 2021, how did you use data to decide what your priorities should be in terms of in data integrity as well as availability, and given the challenges that you faced at that point? Yeah, so um, starts off with the classic uh, risk assessment piece, right? Understanding where key technology risks are and then mapping those to business priorities. You know, what is the things that we want to do? What are the things that we currently do, but which are a bit risky and we need to tighten up with those? Um, so it's understanding the as-is through risk and also business enablement, from which we're then able to apply um, you know, effectively a prioritised approach, because we have finite funding but infinite demand and infinite security challenges and risks, and everything's about balancing the two off. So the highest priority based on the as-is and where we're going to kind of go as an organisation and apply for the funding, the whole business case cycle, to address those risks um, from a people, process and technology kind of perspective. So it's, it's not about kind of just every time you see a risk, you go and solve it for it, because otherwise you end up playing whack-a-mole effectively all over your estate. It is about taking a much more structured, strategic approach to identify and going, right, how do I actually make material improvement to the organisation and to my risk profile through targeted, uh, accurate and precise investments and modifications. 
Great, thanks. Uh, next question, let's stay in the room. Who wants to go next? Do you do any kind of mapping like we saw in the first uh, the first talk, maybe of like clusters of there's A, B positive over here and there's... From, a, from a, just a general data... Just in general data yeah, yeah. visualization point of view, yeah. So, uh, outside of cyber, uh, uh, from our data analytics side of the house, yes, we do um, kind of mapping of... Uh, so, first of all, blood groups and stock levels across the uh, country, as you'd imagine, but then also um, by kind of geographical kind of region across the country. So where do we collect the most X, Y, or Z, blood group and type, etc. So we undertake that kind of analysis. Um, from a cyber perspective, what we're able to do as well through our SEAM, um, so Security Incident Events Management Tool, is to be able to identify those areas uh, of the country um, or, you know, or be they mobile uh, blood donor section, whatever, where we either see the most kind of suspicious suspect or poor behaviours from individuals, etc., and we can work out, use that data to work out interventions at a local level, but then also kind of zooming out a wee touch as well, looking at, right, where, where, where is the nasty coming from globally, um, and where is it trying to um, try and kind of compromise us? Uh, most of the time it looks like it's coming from the US, but that's because that's where Microsoft is, or Dublin, that's because where they have the Azure data centers, etc. So unpicking through that to give us some real insight to actually see, actually, what things, where can we move from a detection and actually say, actually, we don't like that at all, and move it to protection and turn it off. So it's an, it's a, it's a, an allow mode, sorry, a deny mode rather than an allow mode and then inquire. Thanks. Uh, next question. Otherwise, I will ask one, and nobody wants that. Um, you mentioned um, the sort of diminishing skills um, available, yeah. and also I mean, the huge amount of data and the amount of compute that you must need to deal with that and all of the, the different systems that you must have to procure. So how, how do you approach buying in the right skills and buying in the right systems? Mm -hmm. uh, so if we go with skills first, um, conscious of the time, because we could speak for years on this. So I think there's... Um, the trouble with cyber skills is there is a huge, huge, huge just skills gap, writ large, like over two million vacant roles, I think, in Europe, maybe globally, right, in cyber. Um, you also have certain industries paying two, three, four times the salaries that I can pay within, uh, say, the NHS, right? So how do you solve for X? Well, there is um, a number of ways, I think, and we've, we've tested a few of these. So one is grow your own, get grads, get people from uh, kind of apprenticeships, et cetera, right from the outset, really invest in their learning, their training and the development. And my goodness, do they fly. Um, they, uh, one, they pay it back tenfold. And they're also very much kind of enamored and, in, and driven by the fact they are working on an important mission, uh, working with privileged kind of data and, you know, kind of, really supporting uh, the NHS, in our case, uh, and doing something really worthwhile, which they might probably won't get in many other places. So there's that. Then there's also well, like the, the, the folks at the, maybe the other end of their career who want to come back and you know, after working long and hard in the city or whatever it may be, right, want to come back and do something, you know, pay it forward, however you want to say. Um, but ultimately, it's making sure that you invest in, the folk, in, in your staff. I'd also like to see us do more secondments and kind of not just between NHS organisations, 
NHS into the MOD, MOD into the NHS, into the Home Office, into the Foreign Office, etc. Transfer those skills, cross kind of pollinate skills, approaches, understandings to cyber and how you tackle these problems as, as kind of a Gov PLC rather than just we're the NHS, we're Home Office, we're X, Y, and Z. Great, thanks. Um, next question is from Jeremy online. Thank you for another interesting talk. It looked like you were talking mostly about preventing attack and responding to it. You mentioned that your data is extremely valuable. Please can you speak about what you do to back it up securely? Uh, <laughs> so we, we are compliant with the NCSC secure backup kind of regime. Um, at, and look, but in all seriousness, I could just give a stock answer, right? And just say, well, we have a variety of excellent products which uh, work wonderfully well, um, which they do. But we are also an operator of CNI assets, right? So we have to kind of make sure that we have you know, immutable backups securely, uh, you know, sorry, immutable secure backups. Um, which we absolutely can trust the integrity of the data that they hold, right? Because you don't want to be in that situation where something goes particularly wrong, some ransomware in there, you clear it, but your backup's still got some nasty left in it. So when you come and put the redeploy, you end up in square one. We want to avoid that. So that's where the immutability bit comes in. But there's also making sure that you have to still adhere to the regulation, which in some places explicitly states you need tape and you need four copies of tape and they need to go here, here, here and here. And you think, well, that's good. That was written in 1998. The world has moved on a little bit uh, since then. Um, I need a bit more of a modern solution whilst also satisfying for antiquated regulation. Brilliant, thank you. We've got time for a final quick question. Uh, we've got one down Thank you, Sarah Taylor, Office of the Children's Commissioner. Thinking about the three previous presentations, um, how mature are you? Do you share your data and do you map your data? Do we share our data? Yes, we do. Uh, so we have a number of research kind of programs, initiatives, etc., uh, both with academia, uh, but also pan and cross uh, NHS. So we share with what used to be NHS, Digital NHS England other trusts, et cetera. So we share data in that regard. We also have legal obligation to share um, certain data. Police inquiries, the kind of, those kind of standard kind of um, uh, obligations. Uh, do we map our data? Yes, in parts. We're getting better at it. It's not a perfect science for us. Um, we have some very, how do we say, old uh, systems and databases, etc., which are being in the process of upgrading, but trying to map those in a consistent manner is tricky, especially when one of them, uh, you know, kind of got put into service the year I graduated college. So, uh, all those years ago. <laughs> uh, well, that was great. Thank you very much indeed, Dan. Pleasure. Just a few parish notices before I let those of you in the building escape uh, to the reception afterwards. Um, video of this event should be up on the IFG website within around 24 hours. There'll also be the audio feed available, and you can already watch back as live on Slido and YouTube. Uh, the next IFG public event uh, will be on Wednesday the 10th of May. That's on what lessons can the Treasury learn from the pandemic. Lots in there about data and transparency and information as well. Uh, we've also got events coming up on levelling up and NHS procurement. And and of course, the next Data Bytes will be on Wednesday, the 17th of May, and it's our second Justice Special. Um, if you've enjoyed what you saw tonight and you work for a company that might have a budget, um, please do get in touch with us as we do need sponsors to keep the series going. So uh, 
Please do think about that. Um, and all that remains for me to say are two very big thank yous. First of all, to you, our wonderful audience here in the room and online, some brilliant questions tonight, so thank you for those. And please join me in a huge round of applause thanking our brilliant speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.